Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. So open with me to the letter of Jude. And we are going to finish our study today. Let me recap the first 23 verses real quick. Um, Verses 1 and 2, Jude gives his introduction. He introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He addresses his audience as those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. And then he speaks a blessing over them. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So that's his greeting in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 and 4, he spells out the point of why he's writing the letter. So he says, hey, I'm writing to you, though I wanted to write for another purpose, though I wanted to write you a letter just of our common salvation, kind of exhorting you in that, uh, I felt it impressed upon me to write, urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he says, why? Verse 4, because certain people have crept in unnoticed are perverting or twisting the grace of God into sensuality and causing people to fall away from the faith. And then he, we spent a long time in verses 5 through 11 where he gives seven Old Testament examples of people who, who did the same, who people who perverted or twisted the truth of God and caused others to abandon the faith. Um, and he uses them as an example and warning for us. He talks about Israel and the fallen angels and Sodom and Gomorrah and false prophets. And then in verse 11, he hammers that, those examples home with three, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And uh, he, he just points to those Old Testament examples. We walk through all those stories. He does all that to say, hey, this is not new. I want you to contend for the faith because people have crept in who are, who are twisting it. And, and this has happened in many different ways and forms before. And that's why he gives all these examples. And then in verses 12 through 16, he gives this, vivid description of these wicked false teachers and he he calls them hidden reefs and selfish shepherds and waterless clouds and fruitless trees wild waves wandering stars and ultimately ungodly sinners and then uh, last week we looked at verses 17 through 23 and, and and that section is where jude kind of begins to close his letter out so after saying hey contend for the faith because people have crept in unnoticed who are perverting the truth and causing others to fall away, just like these seven Old Testament examples. And those people are like this. Here's their character. Now he, he begins to close things out in verses 17 through 23. And he issues a strong admonition to the saints and calls them to persevere. And he essentially gives them three instructions. And we looked at these last week. Number one, remember the predictions. He says, remember, none of this should take you by surprise. This was all predicted, that false teachers would come in and lead people away from the faith. It shouldn't shock you. God's seen this and known this from the beginning. It's been predicted. So remember the predictions. And he says, keep the faith. Build yourselves up in the faith. Obviously contend for the faith, but also build yourself up in the faith. If you want to contend for the faith, be strong in the faith. And so do those things that build your faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit, things like that. And then he says, so remember the predictions, keep the faith. And number three, rescue the deceived. Some people who have been bitten by false teaching and are wandering from the truth can still be saved, is what Judah is saying. 
So he says, reach out, snatch them from the fire. As you do so, be careful. Make sure your feet are on solid ground. Be careful you don't get burned or stained yourself. And so that's where we've been. That's the first 23 verses of this letter. Today we're going to finish our study in this letter as we examine the last two verses. So let me read them, then we'll pray and dive in. Starting in verse 24. This is how Jude closes the letter, and it's amazing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father God, I just pray that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning to hear and receive your word. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit, through your word. Teach us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So all of this heavy ground that Judah's been plowing, all these weeks, I mean, 11 weeks, I think this is week 12 in this little letter. And I'm glad we take, took all this time uh, but what that's meant is we spent several weeks in some dark, heavy passages. And what happens is now, at the end of this letter, Jude now brings this letter to a breathtaking climax in these final two verses. And what he does is he fixes our eyes squarely on Jesus. So he's talked about all these false prophets. He's given all these examples of Old Testament people who abandoned the faith or twisted the faith or were rebelled against God. And we spent a lot of time in that stuff. And then right at the tail of this letter, he goes, but ah, look up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And he offers this amazing doxology. Now, at the beginning of this series, we use that word uh, and we kind of defined it. But it's been, you know, 12 weeks since then. So let me kind of redefine that word doxology for you. It, it, it comes from two words, from doxa, meaning glory, splendor, grandeur, and logos, meaning word or speaking. So it just means, doxology just means speaking the glory of God, speaking of the glory of God, or expressing the glory of God. It's an expression of praise. It's an expression of the glory of of God, And so what Jude does by offering this doxology at the end is he goes through all this heavy ground and then he go, offers this doxology. He says, but let me now express to you the absolute glory of God. Let me just praise God for who he is and all he's done. And here in these final two verses, I see at least seven reasons to praise God that Jude offers. And we're going to plow through those hopefully pretty quick. Number one. Why should we praise God? Why? Number one, God is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from stumbling. Look at verse 24 again. He says, now to him who is able. First of all, let me just stop there. Because a few times in the New Testament, the, the New Testament writers by the Holy Spirit use this phrase. They said, to, to him who is able, or to God who is able, we're going to talk about what he's able to do in just a minute, which is God has all power. All power. But I just, want, I just want to press that on our hearts this morning as we kind of dive in. That like, just, just hold that in your heart. Like whatever trial you're facing, whatever circumstance you're up against, don't ever forget that you serve the God who is able. 
What we do is we puff up our trials, our circumstances, our situations, and we start to freak out. And I can imagine that maybe these saints that Jude is writing to, even in this letter, are in their circumstances. A reason he's writing to them. And they're experiencing all this false teaching and people falling away from the faith. And they probably started to freak out. And so what he does at the end of this letter is he starts saying, You serve the God who is able. None of this is out of God's control. None of this is out of God's hand as if God is sitting there wringing his hand, stressed out, wondering what to do about this. Your God is able. God is not weak or lacking in power. He is well able to do all that he purposes and promises to do. But now what is Jude specifically saying that God is able to do here in this passage? He's saying, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So we're talking about all these people who have twisted the faith and others are falling away. They're stumbling into error and falling away from the faith. And Jude says, but God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is well able to keep you in the faith. Well able to do it. It's interesting to me, flip back to verse 1. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and what? Kept for Christ Jesus. Now flip forward again back to our verse, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you. He starts and ends this letter by framing this for the believers. He says, Listen, before I go into all this other stuff, you need to know. Before I go there, and now, now that we've gone there, I want to remind you, bookended this letter, from the very front and the, and the very end of this letter, you need to know that God is able to keep you in the family of God. God is able to keep you in the faith. He's able, that word keep is to guard or maintain or sustain you. God is, is Jesus said, no one's able to snatch you out of my hand. Who's able to snatch you out of me? He says, no one is able. The Father has given you to me, and no one is able to snatch you out of my hand. Who is going to strong-arm Jesus and snatch you from the faith unless you you decide to come? So he's like saying, don't freak out that there's false teaching and other people are falling away. I believe nine times out of ten, maybe more, maybe ten times out of ten, we fall away because we want to fall away and because we're looking for reasons to fall away. But for those who are in the faith, genuinely in the faith, guarded by the Holy Spirit, he says he's able to keep you. He's able to keep you. Now you may reject the truth, you may reject the faith, but he's able to keep you. So it's not like you're going to accidentally fall away. It's not like you're going to accidentally give yourself over to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You can be bitten by that stuff, but the Spirit of God inside of you has a power to keep you in the faith. And so in the midst of all this false teaching and falling away, Jude just comforts the saints by reminding them that God, we don't just serve a God who has saving power, but keeping power. I remember talking to a uh, brother uh, in the faith who said, uh, man, sometimes I'm, I'm uh, jealous of guys like you and your testimony because like you have a very clear like before Jesus time and then a you know, dramatic salvation story and then, and then, you, and then you've, you know, some transformation and all that. And uh, so it's kind of like this, you get to tell the whole like, oh, before 
Jesus and, you know, fighting and drugs and whatever, you know. He was by, I didn't have, I don't have that. Like, I've, I've believed the gospel as long as I can remember. I remember being raised around it, and, and I remember the point where I believed for myself and whatever. But I never had a dramatic kind of, I never went off and went psycho. And, um, you know, in his 40s at that point, and I said, well, my testimony may encourage you because you see the saving power of God, but your testimony encourages me because I see the keeping power of God that for 40 plus years, you have never wandered from the faith that God has kept you from the moment as a child when you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, that the Lord kept you in the family of faith. That encourages me. At this point, I was a, a, a newer believer, and I said, that encourages me as a new believer this doesn't have to be some flash in the pan for me. This doesn't have to just be some emotional experience I'm making in a moment that doesn't stick. That 40 plus years from now, 50, 60 years, until the Lord returns or I take my last breath, God has the power to keep me. And that's what Jude is saying. Yes, you're seeing falling away. Yes, you're seeing false teaching, but God has the power to keep you. God has the power to keep you safe and rooted in the truth and in the faith. What a comforting promise. Listen, you're safe in his hands, and no one can just snatch you away without your will. Number two, second reason I see here to praise God. God will present you blameless. Look at verse 24 again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Present you blameless. Okay, quick question. Are we blameless in all of our deeds and motives? Are all my actions blameless? Are all my motives blameless? No, none of us are. The scripture says there's no one righteous, not one. So in myself, in my flesh, in my actions, and my motives, sometimes I'm even doing the right thing, but I'm doing it for wrong reasons, and so my motives taint the whole thing. I'm not blameless. Scripture's clear. There's no one blameless. And yet... The Bible tells us repeatedly, and Jude is telling us here, that God will make us blameless. Wow. It's not in your notes, but jot down 1 John 1.7. 1 John 1.7, chapter 1, verse 7. Because that verse tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1.7 tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is a verse I would love to see you highlight and memorize and come back to every day of your life until the truth of this verse sinks so deep into your heart that it changes you forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, talking about the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It says, for our sake... He made him to be sin, to become sin, who knew no sin. That is Jesus. Jesus never sinned. Jesus knew no sin, but it says he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that, why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what's happened? This is the gospel, guys, that Jesus on the cross bore my sin and shame. Though he never sinned, he became sin. He took upon sin. And he bore my sin and shame. He became 
sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that word righteous means in right standing. So in my actions, in my flesh, in my motives, I am not blameless, but all of my blame was placed on Christ and all of his righteousness, right standing with the Father was placed on me. That's how we can be made blameless before God the Father. It's not by trying harder and trying to let my put that scale out again and try to make sure my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and hopefully the scale's tipped in the right direction at the moment of my death. It says, no, if you stumbled in one point, you're guilty of all of it. So that one sin just whoop, tips that scale forever in that direction unless he made him who knew no sin to become sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So now those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, we are hidden in him. Our sins are washed away. He bore them. He paid the price for them. So I, this is the, why we call it a beautiful exchange is because I give him all of my sin and imperfection and unworthiness and filth and he gives me his perfect purity and righteousness and holiness. And so God looks at me and you and all of us who are in Christ and says, you're blameless in my eyes because all of your blame has been paid for. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And that's what it means when Jude says, to him who is able to present you blameless before his presence. That's a good reason to praise God. Number three, <clears throat> God will bring you to himself. God will bring you to Himself. Let me read verse 24 again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, where? Before the presence of his glory. He's going to present you before his own presence. I'm bringing you to myself. That's what God is saying. Jude says that God will bring us before the presence of his glory. Now, let me take a, take a second here to kind of flesh that out. To be brought before the presence of the glory of God is no small thing, okay? So let me give you a couple of verses. I, 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 the glory of God is described in the scriptures. I literally, in my research of this, there was like pages and volumes of verses that we could pick. I picked only, I think, three. We're just gonna look at them because they're heavy examples, okay? Moses on the mountain when he receives the law from the Lord, okay? Exodus chapter 24, verses 15 through 17. I want you to see the glory of God and the impact and effect of the glory of God. It says, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain and in the sight of the people of Israel. It tells us elsewhere that the people were afraid and trembled and said, you go up, but we're going to stay here because they were afraid of the presence of the glory of God. It was terrifying to them. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. This is when they had finished building the temple. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
Did you catch what happened? They build the temple, the glory of God fills it, and they can't even stand up and do their work because the power of the glory of God was so thick and so strong that God's glory filled the place and knocked them down. I, I, I can't even stand up. Let's flip to the New Testament. The birth of Jesus Christ. Angels show up. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So even in the New Testament, we see this. We see this in the book of Revelation also. We're going to see it all over the New Testament. When God manifests, just gives human beings a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of his glory. Because the Old Testament says no one can see God and live. Right? When God just reveals a, a glimpse of his glory, people are filled with awe and, and sometimes terror, fear. They're falling down. It looks like a devouring fire. The brightness of his glory is what the scriptures talk about. Now Jude is saying he's going to present us before the presence of his glory? You're bringing me before that, the presence of that kind of glory? So the glory of God is nothing to be taken lightly, and it actually causes a fair amount of terror to some people in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And it says many on the day of judgment, they're going to say, let the rocks fall on us and the mountains just devour us, hiding, trying to hide from the, the manifestation of the glory of God. The scriptures tell us in Revelation that there will be no need for sun in, in eternity in heaven, in a new heaven and new earth, because the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ will just fill the place. The glory of God replaces and surpasses the sun. And Jude says, God is going to present us before the presence of his glory. But he says he will bring us before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you see it? Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. How does that work? It works because we've been made blameless. It works because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because none of these people had experienced what you and I are walking in right now. And what we get to experience when we're brought before that kind of glory. They're brought before that kind of glory. And they're undone because of their own sinfulness. And I, I, I can't. There's, there's been no exchange yet. What do I do? I'm owning all of my guilt and all of my sin. And I'm so... What does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't. And they have to come and take a coal and purify. It's like this whole thing. I'm not pure enough to even be before your presence. They're falling down like they're dead. But Jude says, we're going to come. God is going to present us before the presence of his glory with great joy because he's presenting us blameless in him. That is because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to live in fear of the presence and glory of God. We can enter his presence with great joy joy. William Barclay in his commentary writes this, surely the natural way to think of entry into the presence of God is in fear and in shame, but by the work of Jesus Christ and in the grace of God, we know that we can go to God with joy and with all fear banished. So 
So for those who are not in Christ, I understand fear and shame is a natural reaction to the glory and the presence of God. But for the child of God who understands the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ, the presence of God is our greatest comfort and joy. So God is presenting us before himself, before all, himself in all of his glories, bringing us to himself. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says. This is another verse I'd love you to memorize. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. We are unrighteous in ourselves, and yet he suffered. The righteous Jesus suffered for us, the unrighteous. Why? So that he can bring us to God, blameless with great joy. You see it? Jesus didn't just die to bring us to salvation. He died to bring us to God. <clears throat> the God who is our salvation. There is no salvation apart from him. And this is a key point because I think sometimes when we think of our salvation, we think of all the benefits of heaven without the presence of Jesus. I've been guilty of this. And the reality is if I could be happy in heaven with all the rewards of eternity and no sickness and no sorrow and no, all those things and all the reward of heaven, if I could be happy in the presence of heaven, happy in heaven without the presence of God, I've missed the gospel because the good news is not that God's giving me all this stuff. The good news is that God's bringing me to him. That God is drawing me into his arms, into his presence, in all of his glory, and that I get to be there, not like everyone else, in all fear and trembling and terror, but with great joy in my Father's arms. That's the reward of eternity. That's the truest, purest reward of heaven is the presence of God. And everything else is just icing on the cake. But we look at all that stuff sometimes and we think that's the reward. It's just the icing on the cake. The reward is that God is bringing us to himself. He's not just bringing us to good morals and better lives and salvation and no sickness. He's not just bringing us to that. He's bringing us to him. So God is bringing you to himself. It's a good reason to praise him. Number four. We praise him because God is the only true God and Savior. God is the only true God. Let me read verse 25. To the only God. You can go ahead and underline that. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To the only God. So this flies in the face of our culture, which loves everything except for Christianity. I heard somebody say, our culture wants us to affirm every religious belief except for our own. And that's so true. The culture we are in expects us to affirm every spiritual belief except for our own. And the truth is that there is only one God. 
only one true God, the God of the Bible. He has no rival. He has no equal. There's no close second. There's no strong competitor for the throne of God. There's one God. And there is only one way to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. So there may be many, many, many ways to come to Jesus. There's one way to come to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. Now that, that doesn't preach well in our, in our day and age, but it's truth. And so that's what we believe, and that's what we preach, and that's what we stand in. God is the only true God and Savior. And so who else would I praise? Who else would I magnify? Who else would I worship? Who else is worthy of all honor and glory but the only true God and the only hope that I have for salvation? So God is the only true God and Savior. That's the fourth reason. Number five, we praise him because God deserves all glory and majesty. God deserves all glory and majesty. Verse 25 again. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory and majesty. God deserves your praise and worship. God deserves my praise and worship. God deserves the worship of every person on the planet. He deserves all glory. And this is why we reach out to those who don't yet know him. Do we do it so that they might be saved? Absolutely. Do we do it so that they can experience the, the love and grace and mercy and joy of eternity with the God that created them and loves them? Yes, of course. But we mostly do it because God deserves their worship. Because God deserves my worship. Because he's the only one worthy of all glory and all majesty. And when we find a place, I've heard it said that when you, where you find that worship is lacking, mission should be happening. So we should go to those places, those, those pockets of people, those nations, those cities, those regions, those, those parts in our, in our neighborhoods where worship isn't happening. Where worship isn't, mission should be happening. That is where people are not giving God the glory that he is due. We go and we preach the gospel and we, because God deserves it and because that's the greatest good for them for all of eternity is to be found in Christ, presented blameless before his glory with great joy. So God deserves all glory and majesty. Majesty is a, is a term that was reserved for royalty. It's, it's, it's hand-picked. It's used on purpose. The term majesty is used, think of a king. Oh, your majesty. The, the Holy Spirit does this through the biblical writers on purpose, pointing our eyes to the fact that God is the king of kings. Listen, we get screwed up because we think, we think that the kingdom of God is a democracy. Like I can vote God out. Or like I can... Or like I can pick and choose, I can vote on which Bible verses I, I want to follow, which ones I don't, or which parts of the Bible are inspired and which parts are not. Like, I just get to vote on that. Like I just get to just decide. It's a democracy. And we get ourselves all jacked up because we treat it. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom with a king who rules on high. So my job is not, is not to vote him in or out. My job is to submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ. All glory and all majesty belong to you. My job as a subject in this kingdom is to submit and follow. And that is for my good. That is for my joy. That is for my ultimate eternal flourishing. 
The way to thrive and experience peace and joy and prosperity and flourishing for all of eternity is the submission to the king, the God that created me, to worship him, all glory, all majesty, all submission to him. And that is how I experience the greatest joy for all of eternity. Number six, we praise him because God possesses all dominion and authority. Now, this is, these are very similar terms. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Verse 25, we read it again. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. These are also royal terms. Dominion is the, the, the land over which, the portion of, of, of land over which you rule and reign. This is my dominion. This is my jurisdiction. This is my, this is, I, I rule and reign over this territory. Scripture tells us that everything, everywhere is God's dominion. He's not king over a territory. This is what they did in the Old Testament. Oh, oh, Baal is this false god. Baal of Peor. There's a god of this mountain. There's a god of that mountain. There's a god of this region and a god of this people. There's multiple gods for multiple things. Scripture says, nope. There's one God, he's king who rules over all. His dominion is everything. His dominion is everywhere. So all dominion and as such, all authority. There is no higher authority than God. If I'm going to appeal to the highest authority on any given issue, I'm coming to God. I'm coming to God. Pick an issue, doesn't matter. Pick a thing in your life. My finances, what do I do with my finances? Let me appeal to the highest authority. My opinion, no. Other people say Forbes, no. God, God's the highest authority. Uh, uh, sexuality, what do I do? Uh, 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 my opinion, my preferences, my feelings, no, no, no. Uh, cultural, no, no, no. Highest authority, oh, God. There's no higher authority. All authority is his. All authority is his. That's what Judah's saying. Lift your eyes, guys. Stop having such a limited temporal view of things like this. He says, lift your eyes to the God who has all dominion. He rules over all, and he has all authority. This is a great God that we worship, and so he deserves our praise. When God speaks, he should be listened to. When he commands, he should be obeyed because his dominion and authority are over all. Seventh and final thing that I can see in this passage here. Reason to praise God is because God is eternal. God is eternal. Verse 25 again. And this is how Jude finishes this letter. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Before all time, that is eternity past, before time as we ever knew it, before all time, God was. And now, God is. And forever, God will be. That's what Jude is saying. He has all glory, dominion, authority, all of these things that we just talked about, he's always had them has them now, will always have them. He's always been worthy of our praise, is currently worthy of all of our praise, and will always be worthy of all of our praise. He possesses all these things before all time and now and forever. We worship 
the God who was and is and is to come. That's what the scripture says. Jesus said, I am he who was and is and is to come. So God has always been and always will be. He's on the throne, high and lifted up. He will rule and reign for all eternity, and he will return in power and glory. And we will either experience eternal separation from God or eternal joy in the glory of his presence. So for the child of God, in this letter, Jude says, listen, these people have crept in and they're perverting the grace of God, but God's able to keep you. He's able to keep you and preserve you. And so here's what I want you to do. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Build yourself up in the faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Stay rooted in the love of God. Expect his mercy. And fix your eyes on the only God, the glorious and majestic God who has all dominion and all authority. He will save you and bring you safely into his presence with great joy for all eternity. And to that, I hope that all of us can say what he says here. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. You're such a good God. You're so good. And Father, I thank you that you not only have the power to save us, but the power to keep us. And so my prayer is that you would keep every one of us, God. Keep us in your hands, safely in your hands, safely, strong in the faith. Build us up in the faith. Strengthen us. Teach us to pray in the Holy Spirit and stay rooted in your love and expect your mercy and to fix our eyes on you, Father. Teach us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and to do it for your glory as we anticipate eagerly eternity filled with joy in the presence of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.